Why those 30 silent years doing what you and I do day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year? The reason is because for those 30 years, he needed to live the life we should have lived. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. What does the Bible teach us about Jesus' earthly life, and why does it even matter? Hello there, I'm Bill Wright. Today we continue Tom's series in the Gospels titled A Survey of the Life of Christ. There are several crucial details that we as Christians must understand about the life of Jesus Christ in order to know Him better. Details such as His commitment to the Old Testament, His daily practice as a carpenter, and His family life. These details help us understand the reality of Jesus as the eternal Son of God, taking on human flesh and living a life like yours and mine, yet without sin. In today's message, Tom Pennington explains several of those remarkable details. Let's join our teacher now, here on The Word Unleashed. At 12 years of age came his first Passover. This is recorded for us in Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 50. Jesus was 12 years of age, and at 13, a Jewish boy had the celebration of his bar mitzvah. Literally, that means a son of the commandment. It meant he'd come of age. He was now responsible before God. In preparation for that momentous event, the bar mitzvah, most Jewish boys went to their first Passover celebration at the temple at the age of 12, the very age we find Jesus there. What's remarkable about this passage, in Luke chapter 2, verse 49, you find the very first words of the incarnate Christ. The very first words of Jesus after he came to the earth. And here's what he said to his parents. Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Now, understand that is not disrespectful. That is not insolent. That's shown both by his parents' reaction, and of course we know that Jesus was perfect and never sinned. He himself said, who of you can point out a single sin in me? This was not that. It was an intentional contrast between your father and I and my father. You understand, um, you know, your father and I were looking for you, and Jesus says, I must be about the business of my father. There was a contrast intentionally built. It shows that even at the age of 12, Jesus had a clear sense of who he was and of his mission. Now, from the age of 12 to the time he was 30, we have Jesus' adolescence and young manhood. Something about 7 A.D. till he begins his ministry in 26 A.D., built on the timeline that I shared with you earlier. In Luke chapter 2, verses 51 and 52, we have a summary of those years. After the incident at the temple, he went down with his parents and came to Nazareth. This is at 12. And he continued in subjection to them, and his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. 
That summarizes what happened during those 18 years. Now, while there are some things that we can't know about these years of Jesus' life, there is much that we can learn, and it's very encouraging to know it. I want to take you into this time period of Jesus' life, and when I'm done, I'll, sh- I'll show you why it's important. It's very important to us, to our faith, to our daily lives, and ultimately to the gospel itself. So stay with me. I think it'll be worth it. First of all, we know that during this period of life, from 12 to 30, Jesus studied the law of God. On the Sabbath, he attended and apparently often led the worship at the local synagogue. We don't know at what age that began. It may not have begun till his ministry, but it possibly could have begun in some sort of a ministry way earlier. We're not told. What we do know is likely that his family had a copy or a partial copy of the Scripture because this was true even before his time. You remember last week we studied the period of the Maccabees, that that period of about 150 years or so before Christ. And Edersheim writes this of that period. At the time of the Syrian persecutions, just before the rising of the Maccabees, the possession of portions or of the whole of the Old Testament by private families was common in Israel. For part of those persecutions consisted in making search for these scriptures and destroying them as well as punishing their possessors. You remember we learned that last week. And so individual families had portions, or in some cases, if they were wealthy enough, the entirety of the of the Hebrew Scriptures. And of course, there would have been complete copies of the Scripture in the local synagogue there in Nazareth. So don't forget that aspect of Jesus' life. Every Sabbath, every Saturday, he was at the synagogue and reading and hearing the Scripture. And it likely, as I said, a, a par- portion of or the entirety of the Scripture in his home. In addition, during these years, Jesus practiced a trade. We know that his father, Joseph, was a carpenter. Matthew 13, 55 says, is this not the carpenter's son? So Joseph was known as a carpenter. But it was also true of Jesus. It was his trade as well. In Mark 6, 3, they said of Jesus, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? Now, the word carpenter literally means a craftsman. The Greek word is a broad word, like our English word builder. It can include the work of a carpenter or a mason or even woodworking. We can't be absolutely sure of this, but it's interesting that Justin Martyr, who lived shortly after the Apostle John's death, wrote this, when he was among men, he made plows and yokes and other farm implements. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus spent so many years of his life working, doing exactly what we do, what consists of our lives, working, providing a living for our families. J. Oswald Sanders writes this, Jesus saw no incongruity in the Lord of glories standing in the saw pit, laboriously cutting the thick logs into planks, or using a plane and hammer. In days when white-collar workers tend to despise those who work with their hands, contemplation of the life of Jesus during those silent years would wither such contemptuous pride. 
He was a carpenter, a working man, who earned his living as others of his contemporaries by manual skill. His was no 40-hour week, but a 12-hour day, doubtless with overtime as well. If it was not beneath the Son of God to work as an artisan, then surely it is beneath none of his children, because he was no stranger to the dust and sweat of toil. Sons of labor are dear to Jesus." And he has imparted to a life of toil both dignity and nobility. So he worked. He worked hard. He worked physically hard. He worked long hours. From a spiritual standpoint, in terms of the life of the nation, annually, as was commanded of all Jewish males, and remember Jesus kept the law perfectly, he would have made the trek to the temple for the three annual feasts. They're required, Exodus 23, Deuteronomy 16. So he would, have, he would have gone, left his business, left his carpenter's trade, and gone down for those feasts and been at the temple, both for the sacrifices and for the teaching. What about his family life? I want you to turn with me to Mark chapter 6. This is a fascinating insight into these years in the life of our Lord. In verse 1, Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things, and what is this wisdom given to him, and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Hometown boy, where in the world did he learn this stuff? Verse 3, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Now think about what that text tells us about Jesus' family life. He had four brothers and he had sisters, plural. So Jesus grew up in a family of at least seven children. And perhaps more if, in fact, he had more than two sisters. It says sisters plural, so we can, we can only assume the lowest number is two, but it may have been more than that. So it could have been a larger family than seven, but it was at least seven. Now the question arises, who are these brothers and sisters and in what sense? Three answers have historically been offered. Uh, Jerome It presented the view that these were not brothers and sisters, but they were cousins. This remains, by the way, the primary Roman Catholic position. And you can understand why. It's to protect um, all of those things, the doctrines they've created around Jesus that are not biblical doctrines. But Greek has a word for cousin. It occurs in the New Testament, and the New Testament writers chose not to use it of these brothers. In addition, the Greek word brother is never used anywhere else to designate a cousin. So this is a highly unlikely view. A second view is these must have been Joseph's children by a previous marriage. That would mean, think about this, that would mean that Jesus was the youngest in the family and the only child of Mary and Joseph. Now, why would anyone have proposed this solution? Well, it was proposed to protect the concept, the unbiblical concept, of the perpetual virginity of Mary. 
a theory that began a couple hundred years after Christ. In addition, I think, to denigrating the sanctity of the physical relationship in marriage, which God says is honorable in Hebrews, there are so many problems with this view. First of all, there, there's no mention of this in Scripture. Also, it erases Jesus' claim to the throne if he wasn't the firstborn. He had to be the firstborn to have the legal right to the throne. And it doesn't match the New Testament picture. In the Gospels, the boys are always tagging along with their mother, and they're later described as having wives. The implication is that they were younger than Jesus, not older. The the third option, and the one that clearly fits the biblical data, is that these brothers and sisters were children that were born to Mary and Joseph after Jesus was born to Mary. And the the biblical statement seemed to clearly imply this. Matthew 1, verse 18, before Mary and Joseph came together, she was found to be with child. The implication is they came together after the birth of that child. And so the whole idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary is not a biblical concept. Again, Matthew 1.25, Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth. And in Luke 2, verse 7, Jesus is called Mary's firstborn son, which implies what? There were other children that followed. And so Jesus grew up in a large family. There are several other implications of Mark 6, 3 that jump out of jump out at us in these early years of Jesus' ministry. First of all, it seems clear that Joseph had died. Joseph is not mentioned here during Jesus' ministry. He was clearly still living when Jesus was 12 at the temple, that incident that's, that's recorded for us, but there is no mention of Joseph after that. Jesus had then at least six younger siblings that he led and supported. A second implication is that Jesus had taken over the family business. He's called the carpenter. That means Jesus worked six days a week to support the family, a large family. He became the surrogate dad. And that brings me to the the third implication, and that is that Jesus led the family. If Joseph had died, as it certainly appears from the Scripture that he had after Jesus visited the temple, but before Jesus began his ministry then, listen carefully, it would have fallen to Jesus as the oldest man in the home to teach his younger siblings the Scripture to be the surrogate father in the home. His responsibility, then, is outlined in Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 to 9. Can you imagine being one of those seven-plus children and sitting around the dinner table and hearing Jesus teach you the Scripture? You imagine being shepherded by a father like that, a father figure like that? No family ever had a better teacher, a more consistent example, a more perfect model of God the Father than they did. And yet, whenever it was that Jesus' siblings first became aware that their older brother claimed to be more than the human son of Mary and Joseph, whenever they became aware of that, they all uniformly refused to believe in him. In fact, more than that, they thought he was out of his mind. Turn to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, and look at verse 21. 
verse 20 says, he came home to Capernaum where he had made his ministry headquarters and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people, that is his own family, heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, literally to seize him by force and take him back to Nazareth. For they were saying, he has lost his senses. So they leave Nazareth to go to Capernaum to rescue Jesus from himself. Go down to chapter 3, verse 31. This is when they arrive. Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. The house was packed. Crowd was sitting around him. And so word had to kind of trickle through the crowd. And they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who were sitting around him, his disciples, us, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. These are my true family. If you're in Christ, you're his true family. That's what he was saying. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Their attitude, that is his family's, his siblings' attitude toward him becomes very clear in a later incident that occurs just six months before the crucifixion. It's in John chapter 7. Look there briefly with me. John chapter 7. Verse 1, after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, that's in October, was near. Therefore, his brothers, his four brothers said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works, which you were doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Why would they say that? Verse 5, for even his brothers were not believing in him. Think about that for a moment. Jesus had worked hard to support the family after the death of Joseph. He had taught them the Scripture. He had been the best example that a human family could ever hope for. How sad it must have been for Jesus for his own family to reject his claims. It's possible, we can't be sure, but it's possible in this, Jesus limited his omniscience. Remember, he didn't exercise his attributes except under the direction of the Spirit while he was on the earth. It's possible that he didn't know that his siblings would eventually trust in him. That may be why at the cross he appointed Mary to John. He may have died not knowing if his brothers would ever believe in him that those he had loved and cared for and taught perhaps would eternally reject him. You know, if you've ever had a child walk out on the faith, if you've ever had a child turn his back on all that you've tried to teach him or her, Jesus knows exactly how you feel. But that's not the main story here. In those years from the birth of Jesus until he started his ministry at the age of 30, Here's the main story. For 30 years, Jesus lived a very ordinary life. Very ordinary. Dean Frederick Farrer, in his famous book, The Life of Christ, describes it this way. In these years, he began to do long before he began to teach. 
He began to do, that is, long before he began to teach. There were the years of sinless childhood, a sinless boyhood. You imagine that. A sinless youth. Can you imagine that? A sinless manhood spent in that humility, toil, obscurity, submission, contentment, prayer to make them an eternal example to all our race. We cannot imitate him in the occupations of his ministry, nor can we even remotely reproduce in our own experience the external circumstances of his life during those crowning years of ministry. But the vast majority of us are placed by God's own appointment amid those quiet duties of a commonplace and uneventful routine which are the most closely analogous to the 30 years of Jesus' retirement. It was during those years that his life is for us the main example of how we ought to live. Think about that. For those 30 years, an ordinary life. He grew. He studied the Scripture. He attended the weekly synagogue worship. He worshiped. He worked. He raised a family. He did exactly what many of us here tonight are doing even now. He experienced it all. A completely ordinary life. And clearly, as Farah writes, he is an example in those years. But is that really the point of those years? Is it all just about his being an example? No. It's much more than that. Those 30 silent years, yes, he did set an example, a wonderful example, a reminder that it's okay. It's okay to live an ordinary life of work and family and worship of God. But he also lived those years, those 30 years, so that he could live the life we should have lived. You ever wonder why Jesus didn't just come down for the Passion Week? Why didn't he just come down for the weekend? Come down for Friday through Sunday and go back to heaven. Why those 30 silent years doing what you and I do day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, quiet obscurity? The reason is because for those 30 years, he needed to live the life we should have lived. And here's the good news. He did. For those 30 years, he did everything right. He did everything at every stage of life the way we were designed to do it. The way God created it to be. And he did it not for himself, but he did it for us so that his righteous life in justification could be credited to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, The Father made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Where did that righteousness that's imputed to us come from? It came from the righteousness of Jesus Christ, earned by 33 years of perfection, perfect obedience to God. And Christian, here's the really good news. In justification, God takes those 30 years of silent, ministry, silent work, obscurity, and those three and a half years of perfect ministry, and He credits them to your account 
And He now treats you as if you had lived those years of perfection. That's what Paul said. And that's why those 30 years matter. It's at the heart of the gospel. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part two of his series, A Survey of the Life of Christ. Tom will have part three for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. In a world filled with great uncertainty, God's Word and the promises it contains offer wonderful encouragement to believers in Jesus Christ. We pray that the ministry of The Word Unleashed is playing a prominent role to that effect, and we'd love to hear how that works in your life and personal walk with the Lord. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional series from The Word Unleashed. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Music